We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Yagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. Yeah. It's in. Yeah. It's in. We're starting. All right. We're starting. It's, it's happening. Yeah. So start yeah. from the beginning and sound natural. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, wait. No, before we do any of that, um, welcome to Floodcast. I'm Declan. Um, I'm Joe. I'm Matt. And we're really excited to have our, our guest, Adam, um, from online. Um, we're going to be talking about the institution that is the Australian Defence Force um, and the Army. It's something that seems like it's relatively powerful and and exerts quite a lot of influence both in Australia and the rest of the world, but that I know instinctually I want nothing to do with and know nothing about, and I feel like that's probably not a great orientation. Um, what were you saying just before we started recording, Matt? Um, oh, yeah, I was saying there's a couple of things I'm interested in, and one is just, um, Adam, you made some tweets recently about, you reckon, the um, culture of the armies changed over the years, and that's made... Um, basically all of the, the war crimes that have been in the news recently um, and the various abuses of power and um, like desecration of bodies and horrifying things of that nature um, a lot more likely and have made soldiers perhaps more likely to get away with it. So I was interested if you could tell us a bit about that, but also just about um, your time in the army more generally and what it was actually like um, what it's like being over there in um, Afghanistan, I believe, and then how it ended up pushing you to the left. But yeah, maybe if you could maybe start by just telling us a little bit uh, about yourself and what your background is. Sure. So um, I, I joined the army in 1994 um, as a 21-year-old um, out, of, out of uni. Um, so I, didn't, I, I was doing an engineering degree. I didn't finish it. I hated it. Um, and I was looking for something else to do that I could sort of step into as that had a career path, I guess. And I'd been interested in it for a few years. And so, yeah, I, I applied and uh, got into uh, RMC as an officer, so the Royal Military College in Canberra uh, as an officer cadet. And that's an 18-month course. Um, we just go and live there. So it's it's... The first few weeks are similar to what happens to a soldier when they enlist. Um, you get sort of inducted into the system. So there's a lot of screaming and yelling and running around making your bed and all that sort of stuff that's that's pretty well portrayed in movies accurately. Um, um, so that's the first couple of weeks. And then then you kind of settle into getting trained to what your job's going to be. Uh, then you pop out the other end of that as a lieutenant. Is that is that raising any questions so far? <laughs> yeah, well, most I wanted to ask like what like what was kind of going through your head as a twenty one year old, and I guess like who the army draws on and who it recruits. Mm. Like what in all those different corps, I imagine they have their own kind of internal cultures, but um, like officers, I imagine draw on like university educated people, or at least like upper middle class people to some extent. But um, like who who is actually joining, and why really? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, yeah, I think the the officer corps is drawn from, yeah, sort of middle class and up. Um, generally speaking, that's not that's obviously not universally true, but generally speaking, um, they they don't you don't need to be uh, university educated, but um, there's certainly jobs in the army that require a university education. So in in the engineer corps where I was, there are civil engineers, so get degree qualified civil engineers who do some of that design work and that sort of thing. Um, and, and throughout the military, there's various jobs that require um, a university education. The, the, the military, the ADF owns a university or runs a university um, with the, the University of New South Wales, so that's ADFA, which is in some regards notorious in the media for various scandals um, but you you throw a bunch of you know university age kids in together and give them a bit of military training and pay them then you're going to have issues and that's the army and the navy air force will have those issues when it within ADFA so 
um, you don't, yeah, they don't need you to be university educated necessarily, but um, there are jobs that require it. Um, I think, like my experience was, I, I was pretty, um, I, I was, I grew up in a family that's pretty uh, centre right, um, maybe a little bit further to the right than centre right, sort of in, in its views um, about how things should be. And they, I guess, the army wants you to be on that side of politics because it's an organisation that is of the right uh, by definition. You know, it's there to project power for the government. Um, so it's a it's a naturally right wing organisation. Um, so I actually wanted to ask like about how much whether there was any level of like political consciousness among soldiers or whether you I don't know whether that that fact of the army's political role was really acknowledged much or talked about or like did you even think about that when you joined up like what's what's the kind of the level of um, consciousness of that in the institution. I gave it zero thought. Uh, I just wanted to have a job and get paid. <laughs> um, so I didn't really think about it too much at all. Um, and although at, at RMC, uh, there is um, some, there's some courses on um, sort of geopolitical issues and, and military history issues that, that have sort of a geopolitical bent and that sort of thing. It's never, it was never to me anyway, express, expressly put as a, political issue there was never sort of uh, a left and right sort of dichotomy put on anything it was because you're just focusing really on the, the military aspect of it and what's going to be important to you when you leave and as a lieutenant it's really down right down at the lowest level that you, you care about things so uh, you don't get much of that um, and there's I, I was an instructor at, at uh, the recruit training center for a year or I was a, a platoon commander there and, and um, giving instruction, stuff like that. And again, it's, that's not part of the the training. You know, it, there's no discussion of left-right issues. There's no discussion of politics really above or beyond, I should say, the that sort of general concept. I saw Andrew Hastie talking about that the military's there to do violence on behalf of the state or whatever the nonsense thing that he spouted out was. Um, but that's that everyone thinks of it that way, that that's what we're there to do. Um, so if the if the government wants us to go and invade Iraq, then that's what we're up to, you know. Um, and you you don't see a lot of you don't hear a lot of dissent in those kinds of um, discussions because people just want to get on and do that thing yeah. that they're being told to do. So that I mean that obviously kind of leads us into the big story in the news right now about um, Ben Robert Smith. Um, who I think most of our listeners will probably know a little bit about this story, but he's a former soldier um, who's being uh, accused of war crimes in Afghanistan. And it's kind of a convoluted story, uh, which I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on, so everyone should jump in if I'm getting any of these details wrong. But basically there is a um, investigation into him, uh, or there have, there has been an ongoing investigation into him. Um, and it, recently kind of took a new turn when the AFP found a child's lunchbox in his backyard with uh, USB sticks containing um, the news article I'm looking at says classified information, including operational reports from an SAS mission in Southern Afghanistan, drone footage and photos. But basically I think uh, the USB had evidence of his alleged war crimes on it. Um, so it had, no, it, okay, it had a, no, no, it did. It had a, a picture of him drinking beer out of a prosthetic leg taken from a dead uh, Taliban fighter, which is uh, the desecration of a body, which is, uh, I believe, a war crime, like under the Geneva Convention or something. Right. And it okay. had, yeah, um, and it had, I think there's a picture of a, um, a dead guy with posed with um, coins on his eyes, these like challenge coins that the military have with like, lo there's like a logo of Ned Kelly with revolvers and like, um, I don't know, an eagle with a dagger or something. So there's a few, just like pictures of like, um, yeah, posing dead bodies and like taking bits of them as trophies in various ways. Um, there's one of him standing like in a, a pub they have standing behind a guy dressed as uh, in Klansman robes and burning a cross. Mm. And there's also, he's been it's accused normal. of, yeah, normal stuff. 
He's accused, been accused, I believe, of um, just kicking a guy off a cliff, like uh, an unarmed man in handcuffs, just like kicking him off a cliff to his death. Yeah. So that's like, yeah, pretty horrifying, brutal stuff. I was looking at some of the some of the pictures you can actually see online, like they've blurred out um, some of the faces and stuff, but you can see like the picture of the corpse with coins over his eyes. It's really chilling. And to me, like uh, almost the equally disturbing part is that he felt the need to keep like trophies of this um, to the extent that he wouldn't throw away the USB, like he buried the USB in the back garden. Um, that to me is like very kind of disturbing. But um, I wanted to ask you, Adam, like whether you were surprised by that story or um, kind of how prevalent you would say this kind of thing is in the ADF, not necessarily the actual war crimes, but that sort of attitude and, and culture that underlies them and, and makes them go, you know, at the time at least, seemed to go pretty unchallenged. Yeah, um, this, this, it's a huge story, this, and it's, it's obviously much bigger than just Ben Robert Smith. Um, he, he's the poster child for it at the moment um, because of who he is, because he's got a Victoria Cross. I was going to say, I think the other like really interesting factor which is driving this is a lot of the investigation is coming out of Channel 9 because he is a Channel 7 executive, um, which is... Yeah, yeah. that is wild. I, and, just like, it's just like another like element to this, which is quite funny. And his entire um, legal defense, and I think he is now prosecuting several like defamation lawsuits, as everyone seems to be these days, but all of that's being funded by 7. Um, and I think there was some quote he gave being like, yeah, I'd be fucked without them. What's the name of the seven, seven executive? Kerry Packer. Kerry Stokes. Yeah. He's like, I'd be fucked without Kerry. I got my Kerry's mixed up. He's also on the board of the Australian War Memorial. Oh, really? I didn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, Stokes is, yeah. Jesus. Um, yeah, but sorry, go on, Adam. I I agree. Like, yeah, this is obviously a much bigger issue than him. So, um, yeah, tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so... Um, I think I've talked about this on Twitter a bit over the last couple of years as this stuff has come to light. And um, the like, I, I tie this back. It's a cultural issue, right? That not that these incidents occur because incidents like this can occur even in the most professional uh, military organisation with the best possible culture. Because you, you're always going to get someone who slips through the system who is a psychopath or whatever that that's going to be there to commit crimes or that will commit a crime when the opportunity arises so it, it's not wholly um, a cultural thing but it, it's the, the culture has allowed it to be much more than just a single isolated incident and I think I don't have the figures to hand but I think there's something like 40 odd um, individuals that are accused of con- of committing war crimes, and then dozens of others that didn't meet the, uh, the the strict legal definition of a war crime, but have been issued internal um, defence disciplinary proceedings. Which is, I think, what's pretty much happened is people have been given a notice to show cause. Um, and I mean, some of this is going to just be informal stuff that I've been told by people who still serve, and some of it is maybe just speculation by me. But what I've heard is that a lot of the people that got issued notice to show cause um, for for incidents on on deployment in in Afghanistan uh, have been allowed to medically discharge from the military, and so thereby not respond to their notice to show cause. So they effectively, I mean, we don't the Australian system doesn't use the term honourable discharge, but effectively, yeah, they've been allowed to discharge without having to respond to the allegations, um, which which is a bit of a dereliction, I think, that, you know, that speaks a bit more to the culture as well, that that's, that people have effectively been able to leave on their own terms with a medical pension in some cases, um, and, and their, you know, their dignity intact, as it, as it were. Um, so I, like, I pin these things back to what I see, and I saw at the time, I was, I was serving up until the end of um, 2010, and and what I and, and I, I was sort of still around for a couple of years afterwards as a as a reserve member. And the, the main thing that changed around that time was the rules of engagement for soldiers 
to operate under in Afghanistan changed significantly around, I think it was in 2010 or 2011. Um, before that time, the, so the rules of engagement are effectively the laws that you operate under that govern when you can and can't engage somebody with your weapon. So when you can shoot somebody or you can't shoot somebody or, you know, fire the, the main armament on your tank or or your um, your artillery piece or whatever. So those, they're the rules of engagement. And they've been basically the same from the entire time I'd served from 1994 onwards. And they went stretched back into history before that as well. So all operations, they were almost always exactly the same. Um, and it always pretty much required you to positively identify a combatant or in lower level operations, um, so counterinsurgency, counterterrorism type things, if you are directly threatened by an individual with lethal force, then you can respond with lethal force. But the, the response had to be proportionate. So for example, if someone's running at you with a stick, uh, it wasn't proportionate to then draw your uh, sidearm and shoot them. So that's pretty much how it was up until around 2010, 2011, I don't have the date to hand. Um, so what changed was, and particularly what started to happen in Afghanistan, uh, the more forces, uh, the more forces the ADF sent to Afghanistan, the more exposure people had to this, particularly the conventional forces that were in Afghanistan, in Uruzgan province. Um, there became this issue of what were called spotters. So effectively a lookout sitting up on a hill or on a fence uh, or a wall or on top of a building, uh, watching the Australian forces move about the place. And they would then communicate with the opposition force, so the Taliban, and say, oh, the, there's an Australian patrol coming. Yep, they're right next to the, the IED now, fire the IED, right? Or initiate the ambush or do whatever. So these guys, guys, girls, kids, whoever it was, were, were sort of sent out there unarmed with a radio, um, usually sometimes a, a, a phone, to use those types of things. Sometimes it was even as simple as a, as a mirror, just flashing light with a mirror. And that's how they would signal these, um, these Taliban attacks against the Australian forces. And if you can imagine, as I just discussed what the ROE had been, that's, you know, a kid or somebody with a mirror or a radio is not directly threatening you. So you can't really engage them. Um, so that became a bit of a problem. And um, it, like I acknowledge as well, it is a difficult problem to solve how you deal with that without, um, without straying into just shooting people um, randomly that you think might be a problem. Um, it's a difficult problem to solve for sure. Um, so the way it was solved was the rules of engagement were changed. So the, the then CDF um, signed off on a change to the rules of engagement that allowed the engagement of spotters. So it meant that if you suspected someone was acting as a spotter, you could engage them with lethal force. Um, and in, in a counterinsurgency operation, you are what you're trying to do is, is, you know, that old phrase of win the hearts and minds of the population. You're trying to win them over to your side and get them to be part of your um, your mission. Um, but it's very easy when you start doing things like engaging spotters, it's very easy for the opposition force, the Taliban, to point at what you're doing uh, and say, look, they're just killing people randomly. Uh, look at these guys there. You know, and then they can use that to their own advantage by sending kids out with mirrors or old radios that don't work and just getting them to wave them around and then lo and behold, Australian soldiers start engaging them. Uh, and then it's a propaganda victory for them. Is that one of the like the causative factors that you put to like the change in the change in the culture of the the defence force? Because um, even just when I was doing my preliminary reading I saw that like some of the some of the changes that happened over like over the Howard years seem to I guess, changed the orientation of it toward being, I guess, much more of a an organisation that projects strength overseas and, like, assists the US military rather than, I guess, its primary kind of purpose of, of defending Australia that it had existed from the 70s? Mm -hmm. 
yeah for sure so the yeah the the, the change in roe was like it's the that's sort of the um the final link in the chain if you like that's that's been led to these incidents that's my opinion um but it's certainly not the the only thing that happened and exactly what you said is that you know from the sort of 2000 maybe 98 99 onwards um and then definitely after 9 11 it really ramped up there was a, there's a, a shift in the perception of what the adf was there to do so um i'd love so to talk that talk about that a little bit more yep. in like so what what did it understand itself as like kind of prior to 9 11 and then after 9 11 like how did that how did that happen and what did it feel like yeah well, when i walked into recruiting in brisbane in you know 93 or 94 whatever it was the the posters on the wall were soldiers carrying refugee kids in camps in rwanda that's what was on the wall and that's you know with with a blue un beret on um and so and and the people who instructed us at, at rmc were veterans of rwanda somalia um and cambodia now they weren't major operations and not much of the adf participated in those but those were the people who were instructing us and influencing us as as young officer cadets and that's what it felt like we were there to do was those types of things and that we wouldn't we wouldn't be doing a vietnam again you know that although a lot of our training felt like that's what we were practicing for that was just the the uh, i guess the most recent um even in 1994 the most recent sort of widespread war fighting experience that the australian army had so a lot of training was like that but the understanding was that yeah you if you if you went on a deployment it was going to be with the un uh and it was going to be like rwanda or like somalia or maybe cambodia where it was a low-level operations to help people out and you know solve these difficult um geopolitical issues do you think that was mostly propaganda like do you think that that was just kind of like the naivety of youth being like oh well i'm i'm looking for like probably the best possible framing of of what this organization is or do you think it was genuinely how it understood itself at that time i think i think both um for sure that's how i saw it probably because that's how i it, it felt comfortable to me um but I think as well that that was just what the organisation thought it was going to be doing. There was, although a lot of our tactics training and stuff like that early on was was about fighting, what, you know, what the military calls a peer enemy. So effectively, something that looks a lot like you in terms of equipment and training and tactics and etc. Um, nobody ever considered that that's what we would be doing. It was always well, okay, we're going to be pretty much doing low level operations. And and once we left. Once you left RMC or got got outside of the training environment of, of sort of basic military training and you're out in a unit, that's what the units were doing. The the the, the higher level exercises that we were participating in at, at brigade level and above were that type of operation. Go and secure an airfield so that um, an evacuation can take place of non-combatants from this fictitious island somewhere where there's been a coup. It was always that type of thing. And then lo and behold, 9/11 and um suddenly you know we're sending special forces to afghanistan um how did um how did 9-11 affect the culture of the of the institution really it was very strange uh so i I was working in sydney uh in a unit at the time and um up until then you could drive onto a military base by they used to give you a little sticker that you would put on your windscreen uh, of your car and um you could just drive in if you had that sticker on your windscreen uh and it was always a bit of a running joke if you didn't have the sticker you, you were supposed to show your id card as you drove through the gate and people would sort of play this game of what's the stupidest thing you can hold up and still get let in through the gate um so i remember the the, the ruling uh, the reigning sort of champion in brisbane was a billy joel cassette tape um <laughs> had been sort of waved at the security guard to get through the gate um, people had tried sort of half a slice of toast, all this sort of thing, to, to, because you could just drive in wherever you wanted, pretty much. Um, and it, it was, they were very open. The families would just come onto the barracks at, you know, at will. 
the, the base in Brisbane had pedestrian gates um, on the train station side where you could just walk through um, with no security guard on the gate at all. You could just walk, walk through the pedestrian gate. Uh, on the morning of 9-11, um, there was a queue about three kilometres long outside the base I worked at because they suddenly decided that even though there was no real reason for it, they decided that military bases must be a target too. So they started like checking everyone's ID, opening boots, uh, all this sort of stuff of, of the vehicles driving through the gate. And I love this escalated. idea that the um, that you know this this terrorist organisation is simultaneously strong enough to pull that off in the US and then. I guess invade suburban army barracks in Australia. Like... Yeah, yeah it was <laughs> the obvious next step. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It, it was so ludicrous. It made, it made no sense at all. But that's just the way the system functions. You know, it, it goes, oh, there's a threat. Okay, lock everything down. Um, and it was very strange. And the, um, yeah. So then it, it sort of escalated from there very, very rapidly. Um, bases became sort of walled off high security environments. Um, like I, I remember on the morning of, of um, 11 September, we had to go, if, if you got on the base, once you got on the base, you often had to drive back down to the front gate to pick people up because they didn't have their ID cards because people just didn't carry them around all the time and stuff. It was just, you didn't feel like you had to. Um, but then suddenly, yeah, it became this big thing. Um, and to my mind, that was part of and I don't, know, I don't necessarily think it was deliberate, but it became part of this cultural idea that we're under threat, that, that this, this attack that's happened on the other side of the planet, very specifically targeted for a very specific reason, somehow flows onto us. And we are now part of this and we need to be vigilant about it. Um, and that at any moment, this could happen to us, even though there's no reason to believe that. Yeah, I think that kind of leads to something that I wanted to talk about as well, which was just the the Australian Military Association with the US. And mm. like obviously that that's kind of the only thing that makes makes us a target in a lot of ways. Um is is there any kind of like institutional not like not institutional, I know institutionally that where they're all on board with the US, but is there any kind of are there mutterings in the army about like well, look, do we really need to be a part of the US kind of military imperial program. I mean, obviously not phrased in, in terms of, you know, do we, the US imperial program, but but is that part of the discussion, it, you know, at, in, in the barracks? Yeah, it is. Um, because, uh, I mean, despite what it probably looks like from the outside, it, it's not necessarily an organisation of, of mindless drones. Um, the, you know, people in there, they're, they're paid often paid to think um, and, and make smart decisions about things that are presented to them at very short notice. And so they're, they're not necessarily uh, unaware of what's going on around them. And people do talk about it for sure. And, you know, uh, I certainly talked about it a lot, um, but over time, I, I, I'm quite honest about it and I've been honest about it plenty of times that circa 2002, 2003, I was, gung-ho for Iraq that was and I went you know that um, I was very very keen for it I thought it was a good thing to be doing but I think it became more obvious as time went on that hey what are we actually doing here so can you talk a little more about that just like that process of starting to question what were you doing there and and for you personally like how that kind of led to a it seems like you've gone on a bit of a political journey yourself. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to hear kind of about the evolution of that and how that tied in with your experiences in Iraq. And did you did you go to Afghanistan? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. Um, so I went to Afghanistan in, in 2003, in, in January 2000. Uh, to, did I say Iraq? Yeah, I went to Iraq in January 2003 um, as part of the invasion. Um, at the time, I was, my job was counter- WMD expert, in inverted commas. Um, so I went there in that capacity, um, which obviously in hindsight is... <laughs> That's quite funny, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the humour of it doesn't escape me now. At the time, I um, I took it pretty seriously. You know, that was my job, you know, so I took it very seriously. Um, 
And I went in the lead up in late 2002, I went across to the US as part of a planning team when it wasn't declared that that's what we were doing, um, that we, the ADF, was doing. Um, I think everybody knew that the US were agitating for it. Um, and, you know, getting all the briefs and stuff like that, I was like, yep, okay, well, this is an issue and there's going to be troops there. And my job is to make sure that they're not um, not killed by weapons of mass destruction. So that's what I'm going to go and do. And I didn't really think about it beyond that. Um, I was aware of protests and stuff like that, but it didn't really, it didn't sit in the forefront of my mind. I was just focused on what I was getting told to do and what I was um, my planning and all that sort of stuff. And I had a, I had an organisation to take care of, um, you know, of, of soldiers. So I was just focused on that. Uh, and the odd thing that popped into my consciousness, you know, of the news or whatever, some protests and things, I was like, oh, people just don't understand. They don't understand how important this is. Um, and I don't think, uh, I don't think I was alone or and probably still not alone in, in having that opinion of like day-to-day events when you're in the army. You just kind of look at it as the outside world going on around you and they don't really understand what the what's really at stake here. You know, so that was that was my approach to it, and obviously then I went, um, and we didn't really encounter any weapons of mass destruction. Um, and I remember wait, being wait, you, interview- d- you didn't encounter any weapons of mass destruction. Whoa. I know, it's, 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 I know amazing. <laughs> um, what what weapons of mass destruction were you looking for? Like, what what is the job of counter WMD expert look like? Like you're I assume you're not diffusing nuclear bombs. Well, um, that well, that is one of the things you could have to do, but obviously that's never happened. Um, but uh, yeah, so what the what my job at the time was to make sure that the rest of the Australian um, contingent was protected against any possible use of weapons of mass destruction against them. So mainly chemical and biological weapons. When you that Iraq didn't have nuclear weapons, um, but yeah, chemical and biological weapons. And uh, the intelligence stuff that we got given, um, although it was clear that, look, their capability is much reduced, we don't know what they still might have. That's kind of the way it was put, that um, you know, there might still be these mobile lab- laboratories cruising around, there might still be stockpiles of this, there might still be stockpiles of that. And we didn't know how he might use it when, because it was clear that the US invasion would succeed, it was that was you know just a given, and so when it when it looked like uh, everything was on the table for Saddam Hussein, what will he do? We don't really know. What he, does he have a line in the sand? Well, we know he doesn't. Uh, he's used these things before. That's that's the way it was put. What what I had to do was train um, the Australian contingent in wearing their protective equipment. Um, using the detection equipment that were um, issued for the various um, um, chemical and biological warfare agents and assist with the planning of operations to make sure that the risk was minimised and be prepared to respond if something did happen. So if we had a patrol that got um, chemical weapons used against them, be prepared to respond to that incident and sort it out. So clean them up and extract them from the environment, um, treat the casualties, all that sort of thing. Was not really coming across... Well, obviously, like, there was no chemi- you know, chemical or biological weapons in Iraq. Was was kind of the the extent to which that was kind of fabricated and, and as part of the, the project for American war part of what kind of started catalyzing your kind of political shift? I'm really fascinated to hear the, the way that the way that you you meant like you, that you did move your politics within that institution it seems very difficult yeah it's um it it felt not immediately because and this is even to add even more sort of ludicrous events to this timeline when we got back um the the main um the main commanders of the Australian um, detachment were um, sort of pushed in front of some TV cameras and literally off the plane 
in Sydney driven out to the base and there's a media conference and we had to stand there and get asked questions and answer them. Um, and, you know, people asked about WMD. And at the time, like, you know, the day I got back, I still strongly believe that it's just a matter of time that we'll find them. Someone will find them. And, in fact, Australia sent um, a, a, a follow-up contingent um, Oh, I can't think what the mission was called now, but it was effectively a, a, like a survey of Iraq to find them. Um, and we sent people to that as well. But obviously we didn't find anything. And as time went on, it became more and more obvious that there wasn't anything. And then it became more and more obvious that the, at the political level, people knew there wasn't anything, that this was a bit of a sham. Um, and then, it, you know, that then sort of started to play on me a little bit. And I think it did other people as well. And, and some stuff happened over there as well that showed how cynical it was that in hindsight, I was like, oh my God, look, all the red flags were there. Like there was a, uh, what was it called? Operation Baghdad Assist, which was pushed by Peter Cosgrove and John Howard to fly in water and some other humanitarian aid stuff into Baghdad airport. And they wanted the, the contingent that I was working with, they wanted them to support it and the CO uh, basically pushed back on it and said, no, we're not doing that. That's nonsense. Um, that's just PR nonsense. We're not here for that. We're here. You know, we're not putting our people at risk for this crazy talk. You know, if you guys want to do that, do it yourself. Um, and when I looked at that later on, I went, oh, you know what? Other people already knew um, that this was a sham. Um, <laughs> and then I felt a bit silly, to be honest. Um, and it, it made me angry that, uh, why didn't I see this? You know, why didn't I realise this? I'm, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a mindless automaton. I'm, I'm a smart guy. Why couldn't I see it? But so then I, I came back and I, I did a few other sort of related jobs. So, so I got posted out back to a, a normal engineer unit where we're concerned with building bridges and um, providing water and stuff like that. Uh, and as luck would have it, that coincided with. Um, the the government deciding that Australia should contribute some reconstruction effort to Afghanistan and uh, your boy Kells was then in that unit that got tapped to go to Afghanistan and do reconstruction -y stuff and I really didn't want to do it um, it felt pointless uh, I I hadn't had anything to do with Afghanistan but I'd I'd worked in organisations by then that had um, and I'd, I'd, I'd read a lot of briefings about it and because of the area that I worked in um, and there was a lot of IEDs and stuff in Afghanistan we were getting a lot of reports about that sort of thing and I, my my views at the time were that I just don't see what the point of this is um, and people said to me at the time mate this is going to be good because um, we're going there to to rebuild the place one of the phrases that I remember that sort of stuck with me someone saying that this will be after Iraq, this would be good for your soul, which in hindsight... God, that's, that's is, pretty chilling, hey? <laughs> in hindsight is just the worst. Oh, yeah. So it, it sounds like at that time, like um, like in Iraq, you were a lot more enthusiastic or at least much more of a believer in the project. And by the time Afghanistan rolled around, you were like, it felt a lot more pointless and you were a lot more like, well, like, I know they were lying to me about these weapons of mass destruction. Now I'm starting to real like, and this was in like 2005, and like you were starting to say, okay, like um, I'm beginning to see through this a lot more. Was that um, like how common do you reckon that was inside the defense forces? Like, were was that just a you thing, or were you were like more soldiers beginning at that point to start asking these questions? There was in the in the reconstruction task force but there was probably about 200 people maybe 250 people and i think there was about three people who felt the way i did um about it part of this is uh, i don't want to sound like i had sort of the damascus road conversion by this point and i was i wasn't part of the i wasn't on board for the for the general sort of project that was to be done um, I just felt like it was a waste of my time, I think, at the start. Um, I looked at what we were going there to do, and I, I, I worked in a plans role at the time. So that's um, 
at, at unit level, the plans staff are there to basically look at what's happening in the environment, get a task from above. So normally the next level of headquarters above would say, okay, um, the reconstruction task force needs to go and build a bridge in this location. And we would just get given that task and it needs to be complete by this time. And that's how it would come down to us. And then we would say, all right, the plan staff would then look at it and go, okay, let's send out a reconnaissance, work out what, how big this bridge needs to be, you know, what's that environment look like, blah, 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 and then sort of do all the planning for that operation. We wouldn't necessarily design the bridge because we had people to do that. So I just felt like that, uh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that just seems, I don't understand what the point of this is. And when we got tasked initially to deploy, and just sort of looking around going, well, what's the point of this going to be? I don't understand, like, what, we're going to knock up a few bridges and that solves the Afghan problem? I, I don't really get it. And as as time wore on, it just became more and more obvious that there wasn't really a plan for what we were supposed to do. So when we started asking questions about what our mission was, we were told, well, you guys write one and send it back to us and, and we'll tell you if that's right. That's always a... That's a great sign in any organization where you ask oh what are we supposed to be doing and they say oh no we want you guys to tell us yeah and the military doesn't work that way i mean that's probably obvious even to the most casual observer <laughs> that you never get that's never what you get told to do uh it's always well you, you know you, you're going there to do this thing um this is what you, we want you to do but in this case it was we want you to do some reconstructions you know and and don't get anyone killed oh, okay yeah, I, I wanted to ask, because it sounds like you're in the doldrums here, but as you were saying before, not not really like on the path to to developing a different kind of politics around it. How how did that happen and what role did like existing in that institution play in developing a, a left and even socialist politics? Yeah, so I think I would have still described myself as being centre-right at that point, even though I probably wasn't. If I'd, you know, I'd taken one of those, you know, Tests, I probably would have been somewhere over on the left. But the, I kept thinking this organisation is going off in a different direction to me. Um, I don't feel like I'm part of the ship anymore. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of the people that's rowing this boat. Um, and it felt more and more like that. But I also was um, really aware that that was my career. You know, and I was at the time I was a senior captain when I got back from Afghanistan and I wanted to be a squadron commander, which is a job for a major. Um, that's what I wanted to do. So in order to get there, I needed to just keep on keeping on. And so I did. Um, what really turned the corner or where I really turned the corner, bizarrely, I think maybe, maybe it's a common thing, is I, I was working an operations job after that in around, I think, 2008. Oh, yeah, it must have been 2008. And watching the US election um, and, and at the time, barracking for Barack Obama, um, deeply aware that another four years of Republican control of, of the US was going to be bad for everybody. Um, and even though I think my opinion at the time was probably not shared by very many people around me. I was like, I desperately hope Obama wins because he was promising to end all the stuff that had been bad. He was promising to close Gitmo. He was promising troops out of Iraq, um, you know, all that stuff. And so that happened. And then obviously none of the things he promised actually happened. And that really turned me, I think, at that point. I was like, you know what? This is, no, there's, there's no answer in the centre. There's no answer on the right. None of this is going to be fixed by these people. Um, there's, there's got to be a better way. Um, and that's, you know, I started reading stuff and people started sending me stuff. And then I think, I can't remember now when exactly I joined Twitter, but then I started to see stuff on Twitter and go, oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting point of view. Um, and now I think that's what turned me definitely towards the left at that point was just thinking that all the things I hoped would be fixed by the election of Barack Obama and by the defeat of John Howard never came about. And also just Twitter. Like, yeah, um, yeah. I, I'm glad Twitter is good for something. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad, yeah, yeah. Yeah, glad posting uh, helps. Yeah, well, um, 
I mean, obviously, it's it's a terrible website. No one should join it. Um, it's awful. But uh, I think, I don't know, I think maybe I just curated it uh, a decent feed early on. And I just, because I, I wasn't interested in sort of mainstream points of view. I was sick of that. Um, you, you can go to any officer's mess in Australia and hear what News Corp wants you to think because that's what everyone's talking about. Um, you know, the, the, the newspapers are there for free for everyone to read in the officer's mess and that's what people talk about. And the, the people who think they're smart political operators in the ADF who have got a politics degree from ADFA or whatever, that's the stuff they're talking about. Oh, that's boring. It's, there's no answers in what you're talking about, fellas. Um, we need something else. Um, otherwise, and, and, and by that point, I knew guys with PTSD. Um, and that that changes the way you think about things for sure. Um, I was lucky. I never had to experience anything traumatic enough to cause that. But other people weren't that lucky. And I had friends that, that they just changed their lives completely. Not, they didn't change their political view necessarily, but they became wrecks. Um, and the more I saw that, the more I was like, oh, what are we doing? What? Because, I, you know, having seen Iraq and Afghanistan, and not to put, to put too fine a point on it, but I just didn't feel like it was worth, the, the project in those countries wasn't worth what we were paying in terms of the minds and bodies of, of young Australians. Uh, I don't know, does it sound a bit weird? But that's the way I looked at it. Look, I think that's a pretty uncontroversial opinion. I think we could do a lot better. Um, one of the things, one of my only experiences of the army ever was um, was when it helped in the in the 2011 floods in Brisbane, and I was really blown away by by the sheer capacity of the institution to to make stuff happen. And I think probably relatively uniquely on the left, I'm I'm genuinely interested into like what sort of role that you think that sort of institution can play in in a better politics and like wh- how how we should kind of think about what what we would like an institution like this to be able to do i mean i don't obviously don't think that we need to be projecting you know one of the big pieces of one of the things i, I read a lot when we were, when i was doing some of the research was the australian army like supporting the global rules based order which is clearly a way of saying like you know global capitalism and US kind of hegemony within that. Um, but I don't, you know, obviously I don't think that we're about to have an Australian army that meaningfully challenges the US kind of military he- hegemonically, but I would be interested into like what, what a socialist army in Australia would look like and what it would do. It would be very small. That's my opinion. Um, uh, every time there's a disaster or the ADF gets called out for something domestically, I always go off my rocker. <laughs> uh, but I think, I, I think I'm consistent in my point of view on this, and that is that the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force are there to project power. They are there to do, you know, like Andrew Hastie says, to do violence. That's what they're there for. Um, even, even, the, even the most sort of humanitarian parts of the military so the medical corps for example which is all of the medic they're they're trained to shoot people you know like part of providing frontline medical support is running forward under fire returning fire and dragging people out of harm's way to administer first aid so their combat troops that's their primary role is to provide medical support in combat the primary role of the counter id dude is to do that in combat, you're there. You're not demining uh, historical minefields in in Africa. That's not what the Australian Army is there for. There's the NGOs do that. The Australian Army does it under fire in combat in order to get the army somewhere to do something else violent. So it's that's what the organisation's there for. The Air Force is the same. It's there to transport people around and you know play Top Gun jet music. Um, and the Navy's there to send people on cruise ships around the place. But it's all in the, in the support or to support the, um, the use of violence for political ends. So I don't think they have any role at all in disaster relief in Australia. I don't think they should. 
um, what I always say is that if you want a disaster relief organisation that can respond with the speed of the ADF, then build one and pay for it. Use the ADF's money to do that. Shrink the ADF down to, you know, 10,000 people or something and use the money that you save to build your counter-disaster relief force. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, like we we talked about this on our flood podcast, and it's an interesting thing, right? And that it does seem like the ADF has this massive capacity for stuff like disaster relief and the disaster relief, and in theory, humanitarian efforts that like could be focused um, into something very much more productive. And especially with climate change um, coming for us, we're gonna need. Like, it would be good to have some kind of force that's capable um, in cases of uh, floods and fires and so on, capable of this kind of large-scale um, operations, and it would be good to have the the state control that. But then it's all mixed up in, like, it seems like the army really uses that stuff as PR and really, um, from what you're saying, especially in the, the 90s, was kind of conceiving of itself as that's, like, kind of uh, putting that face forward and saying, no, that's what we do. Um, but then is also inextricably tied up with these, um, like, projecting force overseas and with, like, polit like in a lot of cases, just plain political propaganda. And as the, the right seems to have gotten a lot more bold about um, just directly using the army as a, um, a political tool, as, like, treating the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as primarily just something that exists for domestic political reasons. Um, it becomes very intimate, like, becomes impossible to separate, like, what could actually be a useful function of the army is just, like, um, doing disaster relief, like, right here from this very weird and scary um, kind of propaganda role. Absolutely. So the, the military has a domestic role, but it's it's to protect the population and respond to threats of force from state and non-state actors within, you know, the the boundaries of Australia. So, or you know, and and, and embassies overseas and non-combatant evacuation operations. So evacuating embassy staff when there's a disaster or a coup or something like that. So that they have those roles for sure, and um, that's. That's fine. I'm cool with all that. What I'm not fine with is soldiers walking along with police, knocking on people's doors to check that they're home as a quarantine check for corona. Like, that's insane. That is completely bonkers, off the charts, mental. I don't understand how, how that is allowed to occur. I don't understand how the ADF leadership allows that to occur. Well, because that is just absolutely... Crazy. It speaks to it, it, um, our our complete unwillingness to fund an institution that that serves a civil a civic role as opposed to a military one. Exactly. The if you need someone to go with the police to knock on doors to check that people are home for their isolation, then hire some people and pay them. Like, why do they need to be from the military? Is it because that's just a big workforce? And if that's what the army is or the ADF is to the population. If the population look at the ADF and say, well, that's a big workforce we can call on for these things, then, it, you know, then build that and separate it from the ADF because the ADF's core business is is doing violence. Uh, that is that is their core business. Like when you go and uh, as a recruit to Kapuka, um, the recruit training centre, you, you don't get trained um, how to you know, walk the streets and knock on doors for isolation checks. You get trained to fire a weapon and throw a hand grenade and use a radio to call in fire. <laughs> you know, there's, that's, that's your job. It's not, it's not these other things. And if, as I say, if, if it looks like a convenient workforce that can be rapidly mobilised, okay, great. Let's have one of those. If that's what we need, let's have one. And I think we do need one. I think things like the RFS, Okay, instead of it being, you know, well-meaning um, volunteers from, you know, the, the rural areas, let's pay people to have that job. 
And if we don't need them full time, let's make it a reserve component like the ADF has the ADF reserves. And they come in, you know, once a month for a training weekend or whatever, but they get paid and it's a professional outfit. And let's have one of those in every state instead of this huge organisation. It's um, only getting bigger, by the way. Uh, the government is, is wanting to expand the ADF and make it larger. But, you know, instead of having that, let's have something that we actually need. Yeah, I was looking at, um, like, some of the kind of various military arrangements that Australia is part of, and, and also NATO as well, which Australia is kind of, like, weirdly semi-party to win ways that I couldn't possibly have a legal understanding to explain. But a lot of these have, like, you know, minimum GDP expenditure targets or, or ideal GDP expenditure targets. So it does seem like there is a, a real push to continue to expand the institution. Absolutely. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, what happens a lot is people cast around for things. What, what could we use some extra people to do? But the ADF itself is not out cap in hand to the government asking for more people, but the government are offering it. <laughs> so then it's on the ADF to then say, okay, what are we going to use them for? Yeah, like, it sounds like, like basically the army is filling the role that a, a massive jobs guarantee should fill. Um, like, because it sounds like it's closely tied. Like you, you were saying, you just joined because basically you wanted a job and you wanted a wage. And like the one thing about the army is they're always hiring. And it sounds like what we've done, you know, we could have a, a jobs guarantee and a massive like, um, like a core for just like climate reconstruction. Um, like not just disaster relief, but actually like rebuilding uh, cities um, in order to, and like constructing green energy and like all of this stuff that we're going to need in the next um, decades as climate change comes. Um, but instead, uh, and it seems like basically for political reasons, um, we've just, we're just using those resources to um, go overseas and kill people instead. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the, um, yeah, no, no one seems to have, no, no one in politics in Australia seems to have the courage to take it on. Um, and the, you know, the, the insane levels of troop respect and jingoism around the ADF just make it almost uh, immune from any kind of criticism. Um, it seems like that's got worse as well. Like, um, I don't know, like I've noticed even just like there's a, there was a whole thing about the war memorial, like the war memorial in Canberra's had money poured into it and it's been like redesigned as a celebration of the ADF and there's this whole section, if you go on Iraq and Afghanistan, that's like, one of the things I noticed visiting the war memorial a while back is that the older the war is, the more shit you can talk about Australian soldiers. So if you go back to the Boer War, which is in like 1900, you can say, oh yeah, like Australian troops staffed concentration camps there. But if you look at the um, Afghanistan war, it's just like, ah, brave boys. Um, yeah, like it seems like that's really gotten worse. The weird thing is that the army doesn't see itself the way that stuff happens in the media at all. Um, well, when I was at, at RMC, there's, uh, it changes, but when I was there, there was four companies, right? And each one is named after a significant battle that the, uh, the armies participated in. And I started off in Gallipoli Company. And on the back of our company t-shirts was Beach Sprint Champions 1915, right? Awesome joke. Everybody gets that it's a joke, right? And that's, that sort of irreverent take on things is that's how things are discussed, you know, that, that the army doesn't take itself that seriously internally. It, it, it just seems to me that it's, it's, it's used as a political tool to beat down anybody who wants to talk um, seriously about what the way that the army or the AEF should be reformed or changed um that that sort of troop respect nonsense is dragged up and they're beaten with it and that never used to be the case um well i mean geez when i served you couldn't it was you were forbidden from traveling on on um public transport including aircraft in uniform not allowed 100 percent forbidden um now people 
traveling cams on aircraft, um, which is a very American thing. Why was it forbidden just out of interest? Uh, good question. I'm not really sure what the actual reason was. I mean, there's there's good reasons not to, um, just for your own personal security, you know, in a, in a bit of an uncertain um, security environment. It's best not to identify that, that you're part of the military sometimes. Um, the... But yeah, it was just one of those things, and maybe maybe the reason was they just didn't want to be publicly embarrassed by soldiers being soldiers out and about. Maybe I don't know, but but yeah, you were definitely not allowed to. But now it's become a thing, and that thing of thank you for your service. I mean, when people, if, oh, the, the odd time people have said that to me, I'm like, don't thank me. I got paid. What are you talking about? You know, like I didn't do it out of the goodness of my heart. I was getting paid. And yeah, I guess like just to wrap up, that's what really. That's what really jumped out at me about the Ben Robert Smith thing. Like, the way he, like, he's getting paid to, like, the, the fact that he worked for Channel 7, the fact that he got paid, I think, a million dollars, it's like more than that, to go and work for Channel 7. I forgot exactly what he's doing, but that, like, that process of not just celebrating the troops, but actually integrating them into the media apparatus and, like, having this media military complex that'll defend him someone like him to the death when he gets accused of war crimes um and that's like with robert smith it's like ultimately being quite hard for them to do that um because there's photos of him committing war crimes but that like process of it's yeah like the americanization of the um of our relationship with the military which like you know it's a an apparatus that's very well developed in the states and that like they're right here because of their um a very like obsessive and slavish relationship with the american right where they just copy everything that the americans do whether it's actually um works in australia or not um has tried to export over here in this very uh, transparent and um cringe kind of way um but yeah, like that seems to be something that's really um, like brought in over the last few years, really kind of kicking off after 9-11. But um, I think we should just do our final thoughts. Um, yeah, fin finish what you were saying, Matt. Yeah, and also like there is an idea, like I think this idea around, look, ultimately in a lot of ways it does seem that the military is substituting for a jobs program. Um, and you have, I mean, I'm often thinking about um, FDR these days, but like he ran a massive public works job program that was had the same patriotic branding because there's a level in which you have a big state jobs program. It's not like it often has the kind of same patriotic overtones as the military does, but and like and does does kind of get used for propaganda purposes. But ideally, you would be able to separate that out from like the I'm going overseas and invading other countries and like projecting violence aspect of it. Do okay. So my final thoughts. Um, we didn't get to discuss the twerking, which is like a, a great shame. Um, <laughs> your your take, Joe, is the only good. Yeah, take. well, it's not really. I mean, this wasn't an original take. I think other people have said this as well. But I fully believe this is a psyop to distract us from the Ben Robert Smith stuff, um, because. Like, that was all anybody was talking about online for a few days, like the war crime stuff, the USB in the back garden. And then the twerking happened and suddenly it was like, that was the discourse. And everyone's eyes glazed over and they were like, war crimes, what war crimes? I don't remember. Um, and I also, well, I don't know, like, I refuse to engage with twerk discourse, but it, it was hilarious. Uh, and I am like glad it happened because it's very funny, but I don't think that that should be um, a distraction from the main issue. Uh, so maybe it's good that we did a, a whole podcast and only mentioned twerking at the end because the, therefore the PSYOP isn't working on us. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't speak to the Navy and their madness. I don't know. Get Gary on to talk about that. Yeah, we'll have to do a follow-up Navy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, Declan, did you want to wrap up? Um, uh, the, I think the only thing that I wanted to say was it's interesting that we're kind of following the American cultural model of like sucking off the army at any given opportunity as we've started following them in, and like increasingly integrating our militaries together. Um, you know, I don't have any anything else to say except for, hmm, really Mac, you think.
I do make you think. We do live in a society. This is the underlying message of this podcast. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks, everybody, for, for coming along and joining us on this ride. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Oh, if, thanks yeah. so much, Adam. Um, do thanks you want to plug anything, people. or where can our listeners find you if they want to see more of your takes? <laughs> I don't have anything to plug. Okay. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, at Kells underscore 316. So Great. if they want to we'll... follow me and see the horrible stuff that I talk about, then go for it. <laughs> All right. You'll learn a lot about um, how to not get ripped off if you're trying to redo a Range Rover, I believe. Land Rover, Land Rover. Come on. Oh, I'm, so sorry. Car, mate. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I talk about Land Rover restoration a lot and bad army takes. So. It sounds like a great account. All right, I'm going to follow you now. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.